You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. Welcome today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn or flip or poke at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. As we head down this very famous passage talking about Palm Sunday. Now, growing up as a kid, Palm Sunday when we came in, when you walked into the auditorium, you were given this big palm leaf. How many know that? And I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada. Do you know how hard it is to get a palm leaf in Newfoundland, Canada? Very difficult, but we had them. And some of them were even real. Those were the expensive ones. But we came in, and we would reenact what happened back when Jesus was on earth, entering Jerusalem now as king. And this is the passage that we have. Would you read this with me? Let's read this together. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. From Nazareth of Galilee. So a powerful picture. See, Jesus, he had been to the capital, the Hebrew capital, Jerusalem, many times. But now he wasn't just going to Jerusalem to worship, but he was entering as a king, as the declared leader. Now, what comes into your mind when you think of king or leadership? For many of us, that whole view of what it means to be a leader has been shaped by our experience with leaders. Our experience and what we think a leader to be often comes from the experiences that we have, whether they've been good or bad, for better or for worse. And I know even in my life, I've been blessed to have some wonderful leaders, some people who have empowered me, some people who have led me, that when I make mistakes, they coach me, they didn't shame me, but they helped to pick me up. But then I've also had some leaders, they didn't quite do that. Maybe sometimes they would chide me, or they would shame me, or they would do something they thought would encourage, but it actually crushed me. Or maybe they used their power to my perception that wasn't for what it should have been used And sometimes they were just young leaders just learning the way, and I just happened to be in their wake. Have you ever been there? See, all these impressions go in our head. And there were impressions that they had 2,000 years ago as Jesus was walking through. And so for today, as we look at who Jesus was, our king, our leader, we need to unpack a lot of this baggage. Because Jesus was like no other leader. He was the leader. 
And this is what we're going to talk about today as we walk through this. We're going to look at how Jesus entered this, his last week, Holy Week, focusing on three things. Are you ready? Three things to focus on today. Jesus entered Holy Week, first of all, declaring his place as king. Everybody say king. And then he fulfilled his mission. Say mission. And then thirdly, he brought people to a place of decision. Say decision. So we have declared as king, doing his mission, and bringing people to a point of decision. So Lord, as we head down this path, this holy path, lead us today. May our heart be, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, my rock, my redeemer, my king. And everyone said together, Amen, amen. So our first point this morning is king. Jesus entered Jerusalem as king. And as I stated earlier, he'd been there many times, but often just to worship. Just to worship and to engage with people. But now he was entering as king. And how Jesus entered Jerusalem was very important. Because he didn't enter as a lot of other kings did in that day. See, a lot of other kings, when they entered the city, they brought their own entourage that would do things that would puff them up. They would be on a mighty steed. But what did Jesus enter on? A donkey. Now, how many Shrek fans? Now, the donkey in Shrek is called a mighty steed, right? But Jesus entered on a donkey, which symbolized the very essence of peace. So even how he entered, he entered humbly. But he entered with a symbol of peace. And this even fulfilled the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 when it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, for behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So he's fulfilling prophecy. He's, He's entering as a king because people needed a king. They needed a king. Because see, society needs leadership. And it always has. We were made to live together, to work together, to be together. And in order for us to do that, organization is vitally important. Just ask any kindergarten teacher how important organization is to get all those kids together and to work together. It is very important. It's vital in every aspect of our life. And as it concerns Jesus, Jesus was called the great shepherd, giving that idea of what it means to be a leader And that we are sheep that need him. We need a shepherd. But oftentimes we don't get it. And this idea was posed. When a newspaper in England posed this question, they put the question out, what's wrong with the world? Have you ever asked that question? What's wrong with the world? Well, fortunately, one of the greatest thinkers and theologians of that day, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote probably the briefest response letter in the history of mankind. And it was simply in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Because, see, we need good leadership. And the problem is, with the children of Israel, and even in that time, they were caught between two rulers who were bad leaders. They were caught in between. On one side, they had the Pharisees who had become corrupt and self-serving, leading for their own purpose. Have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever been guilty of that? It's okay. Sometimes we mess up because things get out of sight. But they were leading for their own purpose. So Pharisees on one side, but then on the other side, they had the Romans. And Rome was leading them, but they were just tolerating them. 
Rome was tolerating them, trying to keep them under control, allowing them to worship but no more, trying to keep things together so that they wouldn't rebel and come out, but not giving them the full freedom that they desired. Tolerance. Because see, any threat to power to Rome, that's when the tolerance ended and it was eliminated. It was eliminated. See, we need to recognize that without God, leadership is prone to that direction. That's always the tendency. Because someone's going to rule your life. But in God's kingdom, leadership equals sacrifice. Leadership is not self-serving in God's kingdom. The way that God designed leadership, if you want to be the greatest leader, you need to be the greatest servant. It is servanthood leadership. Jesus even said, I came not to be served, but I came to serve. And this confused people, but he kept saying, he's like, look, you want to be a great leader? You be a great servant. You show how great, how awesome you can serve people. That's what a leader does. And this was a threat to the Pharisees. See, Jesus, he was a threat to the Pharisees. And I think one of the biggest reasons why the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus was the fact that he acted like a righteous king. We already said that he was a servant. He led the way in that. But look at how Jesus acted. Jesus was a righteous king in that he had spiritual authority, and he reigned with authority. Spoke even as God. In John fourteen nine. he says, If you have seen me, then you have seen God. He had spiritual authority. But he also had authority over the physical world. He had physical authority. Look at how often Jesus walked through healing the sick. He raised lives from the dead. He had uncontested authority. But Jesus also had community authority. And it wasn't authority that came in with an army. Jesus won community authority. Because he loved people. He won them over. And not just one segment. It wasn't just one little tribe. Jesus won everybody over from every segment. Whether you were rich or poor, male or female, Jew or Gentile, even political leaders looking at him, they were like, surely this is the Son of God. There is something different here. And the Pharisees were threatened by this. Because, see, Jesus, he was the righteous standard, and he was worthy of being followed, unlike Pharisees. How many of you, you love serving a leader that serves and leads the way that Jesus does? They're out to serve. They're out for your good. They're out to lead well and righteously. But this threatened the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 2, 4, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees, this is what Jesus said, They sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. See, Jesus said, you know, they have a leadership position. They sit there. But then he went on to say, but do not do the works that they do. Do not do the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger. Wow, how straight to the point. They're a leader, so listen to what they say because they're in that position, but don't follow them. Don't do what they do because they're putting burdens on people. They're not being a good leader. They're not serving people. And he said this straight out. He said this straight out because Jesus was saying they're not servants. They're bad leaders. They don't get it. And the Pharisees were threatened by this. 
because they knew the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. As Jesus entered now Jerusalem, this was echoing in their heads and they were worried. One theologian says it this way. It says that their reaction to Jesus shows their true motive. They prize the approval of men above all else, above truth, above law, above even the welfare of Israel. Because the arrival of the Messiah would shift the loyalty of the people away from them, leaving them powerless. They had no option but to eliminate Jesus. They fell victim to the same kind of leadership that was actually suppressing them. We'll tolerate you as long as we have power. You threaten our power, we will kill you. One way or the other. This is what leadership does without righteousness, without that godly standard. Because, see, we need to remember and recognize this today, that a good leader, a godly leader, is not threatened by good leadership. A, did you hear that? A good leader is not threatened by good leadership, no matter who you are or where you are. When a good leader shows up, that should not be a threat to you, because you should be recognizing, going, thank God there's another good leader in this place. Thank God there's someone here. And beyond that, a good leader recognizes when their leader shows up. Imagine all the problems that we have, and maybe you've experienced it where there's a leader at work or a leader in some segment of society, and then their leader shows up and a power struggle happens. Have you ever seen that? You ever been a part of that? Massive chaos. Massive chaos. Territorialism starts happening. Tribalism starts happening, and you have these factions and nothing gets done. Because again, a good leader is a servant leader. They want the best of those that they lead. I'm not here for my good. I'm here for your good. I want you to succeed. I want you to thrive in the passions that God has given you. This is what Jesus was stating. This is what a good king does. So Jesus, he enters Jerusalem, and he's declared as the king. The king is here. But he also declared that he was on a mission. See, King Jesus was on a mission. And what was his mission? His mission was to die. This is the hard part. You're king. Why would you die? But Jesus said in John 12, 23, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he went on to say, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, Father will honor him. Jesus came to die, and it was a farming culture, so he used a lot of farming analogies. We're in spring now. If you go to Home Depot or Sky Nursery, it is packed. Everyone's ready to plant things. How many of you were planting things yesterday? Or maybe you bought a bunch of plants, and you're like, man, I better get them in the ground before they die. See, Jesus, he's using an analogy. Every seed that falls, if the seed is not planted, if the seed doesn't die, nothing comes of it. But we know when we put that seed in the ground and it dies, what happens? New life bursts up. We're all good Pacific Northwest gardeners, right? We watch the garden shows. This is what happens. This is what it means. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I must die. Because don't forget his mission. The mission of Jesus was to seek and to save those who were lost. To seek and to save there's no way that you can read the New Testament and not see that Jesus, he was seeking people out. He went everywhere. He lowered himself to become human. 
to be with us, to walk amongst us, to show us how to live. That's a seeking act. He went and he sought out Zacchaeus. He sought out Matthew, the tax collector. He went to the woman caught in adultery. She was being attacked. And he protected her in front of the accusers. And then he said, now go and sin no more. But he protected her first. This is a seeker out for her good, out for Matthew's good, out for Zacchaeus' good. Wherever he went, he sought people. He proved that. They even called him a friend of sinners. And when they said that, they didn't mean that as a nice thing. But how many of you would love to have that title, man, a friend of sinners? They look at your life and you say, man, that guy's a friend of sinners. That's a Jesus title. Going out, befriending people, seeking people. But he also came to save them because we don't want to just look at people and say, well, I found you. Good luck. How heartless. I see that you're hungry, but I'm not going to feed you. I see that you need clothes, but I'm not going to clothe you. I see that you're lonely, but I'm not going to be your friend. That's not who Jesus is. He spines them and he says, I'm here. Meet the need. Step out. Because I'm here to save you. And not just to give a surface thing, but to save you forever. See, we need saving. And Jesus is the only one who can pay that price for our sin. What is sin? It's rejecting God. It's rejecting him, and that rejection of God manifests itself in so many ways, but it's simply disobeying and rejecting God, and that leads you down a course of death and destruction because sin leads to death. Sin leads to destruction. But sometimes that word lost, I've I've said that before, that he's come to seek and to save the lost, but the lost can be an offensive word. Have you experienced that? Telling somebody, you want to offend somebody? Tell them they're lost. My mom and dad didn't argue very much, but one of their big arguments was when mom said, honey, I think you're lost. (laughs) And my dad is an awesome guy, okay? Dad, I love you if you're listening to this. But my dad's reaction was pretty similar to it. He said, I'm not lost. I know where I'm going. I've been down this road before. I know that's never happened to any of you. Have you ever had that topic? Or maybe you're hiking a trail, and the person leading out front, you're going, she's lost. Tell her she's lost, see what happens. Loss can be very offensive. But one of the first steps in being found and being saved is recognizing that you're lost. I was out backpacking with a buddy one time, and we both thought we were going the right way. And we went with great confidence for four miles until it said, Welcome to Mount Baker National Forest. We started in Rainier National Forest, and we're trying to go the other way. At that point, we both knew we were lost. And we had one of the hardest days ahead of us. But we found Jesus in those moments of death. But you need to recognize when you're lost. And you need to, if you're offended by it, you need to bring it to Jesus and say, what's going on? Because some of the greatest points of healing happen after some of the greatest offenses. I've had doctors offend me before by telling me I was sick, and I was going, no, I'm not. I've sat in front of leaders before who've offended me by pulling things out of me that were actual truths. But you know what got me to health, whether as a leader or in my health, whatever it was, it was by recognizing I'm lost. Either I have the sickness, or I don't know where I am, or I've got enough path. But nothing happens until you recognize I'm lost. So we need to be people that recognize, and not, we're not afraid to say, Jesus, I'm lost. <laughs> Find me. 
Even in following Christ, sometimes we get our eyes on the wrong thing. We start going the wrong way. Just say, Jesus, I'm lost. You pull me over, pull me over. Do whatever it takes. Send somebody my way because you came to seek and to save the lost. So be with me. Because, see, Jesus always drew a line. He drew a line. And his line was in his mission, which was to die. It was a line of death. Because, see, death makes it real. Death makes it real. There's a finality to it. Death brings the reality of our sin and the cost to the forefront. Who would give their life for somebody? Who would die for you knowing that you don't even know that you're lost? Who else would die for you even in the middle of your rejection saying, I reject you, and would say, I'm going to die for you anyway. I'm going to suffer for you anyway. This is Jesus. And the death brings a reality. And Jesus' suffering was real. And I believe it was even more real from the standpoint of any moment he could have called it off and said, I'm done. I am done. I just saw the ways that Dwayne's going to reject me. Forget it. (laughs) Because we would do that, wouldn't we? But what did Jesus do? He suffered all the more by going, you know, I see the way that Dwayne's going to reject me. My name's Dwayne, by the way. But you know what? I see the way he's going to accept me. He's going to fall again and going to get up. He's going to fall again and he's going to get up. He's going to fall again and he's going to get up. But he's, he's going to keep getting up and getting stronger and stronger. That's the path that God has for all of us. But the suffering was real. That is not a light thing. Jesus really suffered for it and he didn't have to. It was real. But death drew a line. And this confuses people. Because we equate power with self-fulfillment. Now I have free choice to do whatever I want. And it confused them back in that day. Because see, this goes against our reasoning. Why would he die if he didn't have to? Why would he choose to die? Isn't there some other way, some other less suffering way, some way that I could look at a king the way I have it in my head and still make sense? Because see, injustice in our culture, it is protested, it is fought, it is conquered, and we need to speak out against injustice. But oftentimes, our answer is shallow and it's short, and it often just focuses on the symptoms instead of the root of the injustice. See, Jesus didn't come to put a Band-Aid on it. He didn't call just to identify it, but he called to, to conquer it. And the way that he conquered it was through death, through making that payment forever. But this goes against our reasoning. Because we see here and now, Jesus sees forever. And he's saying, I'm going to not just put a band-aid on it, but I'm going to go to the root of it all. And it echoes that statement of G.K. Chesterton for all of us. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. We look in the mirror and we say, God, change me. Before I want you to change everybody else in the world, I need to stand in front of the mirror and say, God, what would you do in my life? Because so much wrong that happens, it's not about you, but it's about me standing in the mirror. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm praying that he'll make a change. It confuses people. It confuses people. But see, he goes deep. Fights once and for all, making a way for one and all. There is no continual protest. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. 
Many didn't understand it because their view was crooked. They allowed to take a paradigm from what was happening at that day or a paradigm of how they misinterpreted Scripture to be to affect what they believed the Messiah would be instead of who he is. Because to many, the Messiah had meant conquering king who would destroy their foes. Mighty warrior! Is Jesus a mighty warrior? Yes, he's a mighty warrior. He's a mighty warrior. He has spiritual authority, physical authority, community authority, all authority It was given to him. But Messiah also meant temporal cure. Because just swinging a sword is only temporary. Look at what Jesus said. Even as he was being betrayed, even as he was being carried off, he said, put away your sword. Put away your sword. This is short-sighted. And then he performed another miracle of putting the ear back on. He's like, this is not it. You don't get it. I could totally annihilate all these guys right now, but this is my mission. To not put a band-aid on it, but to go deep. To be your Savior, our Savior, the one who would die and provide an eternal cure. But this is our problem. This is our struggle. How do we reconcile these two things? Because see, when Jesus doesn't conform to who we think he is, we reject it. We get confused and we push him away. We say, that's not my king. That's not what I think a king should be or who he is. What does this mean? And this is the great misunderstanding of what a king is. Because sometimes we even bring our own political situation into how we view God. But see, there's a big difference because Jesus, he's not our mayor, though I pray for our mayor. I love our mayor. He's not our governor, though I pray for our governor. He's not our president, though I pray for our president. Those are all people you vote on. No one votes on a king. Why? Because they're king. They are king. And he is the king. He's not a crooked, rotten king. He is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This is who he is. So whether or not we agree with it, the simple truth is that Jesus is our king. We can't vote him in. We can't vote him out. And you wouldn't want to vote him out. No one is more loving. No one is more gracious. No one else is out for your good, your complete good, because no one else knows you. He knows you 24-7. This is who Jesus is. He is our king. You don't vote him in. You don't vote him out. He is our king. And we need to reconcile the struggle and say, you are my king. You are Lord of lords. You see me, you know me. And even though he sees you 24-7, completely, he says, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I made you. Receive this. This was the king's mission. To find you, to seek you, and to save you. That brings us to our last point this morning. That Jesus brings us to decision. Because see, he's our king. And our king is on a mission to seek and to save us. But he will always bring you to a decision. And this is the hard part, right? Because he brings us to a decision of who will you serve? Who will you serve? He makes you decide because there were those who believed, and there are many who believe today. Every time you do a research poll, there's all these people that believe. But see, Jesus, he stands out amongst the all the leaders of the world. 
And even in that day, he stood out. Taught in the temple of age 12. He loved everyone. His, his miracles were undeniable. Healing, raising from the dead. He walked amongst and befriended everyone. He didn't shame people, but he protected them. And he rescued those who were hurting. He was perfect. So many believed, just like they do today. But do you know what the challenge was for people back then as well as it is today? The challenge that people have is one word, approval. Whose approval do you want? Do you want the approval of men and women around you? Or do you want the approval of God? And this is where the Pharisees fell, because the Pharisees, they wanted the approval of men more than God, more than the law, and even more than the prophecies. They knew the prophecy from Zechariah, but it threatened them and it scared them, and it brought them to a decision of we must kill him. John 12, Jesus said, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's a decision. Who are you going to serve? And decision-making is difficult. There are some decisions that are easy to make. Right? Right? But for a lot of the big decisions in our life, they're very difficult. And for the big decisions, they're hard for us because we hate to commit. We hate to commit. Commitment is difficult. Commitment is saying, yes, I will do it. And as a society, we are slow to make commitments in relationships and careers. Have you found that? Hopping among relationships and hopping amongst careers is very common, and it has been for a long time. And one of the reasons is because we've seen too much abuse. We've seen too many bad examples. We walk into a relationship and it's not built on God and so it just falls away. It's self-serving. It's a vending machine relationship where each person is in it for their own good instead of the good of the other person. Or we go to work and we're standing in front of a leader that's difficult. They're not out to serve their team, but they're out for their own good. And that often brings us down to fear. See, fear is often the main factor in a lot of our decision-making, whether it's intentional or whether it's in our subconscious. Because we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be hurt. I don't want you to be hurt. We don't want to be taken advantage of. We don't want to be victims again of abuse. So fear comes in. Fear comes in. And sometimes we're afraid of just looking bad. We don't want to look bad. We don't want to be misunderstood. And sometimes we're even afraid of settling. Missing another opportunity. Have you ever heard of BBD before? The bigger, better deal. We're looking for the bigger, better deal. If I commit now and settle for this... Maybe there's a better deal that's going to come along. Maybe a job that's going to pay more. Maybe more opportunity. Or maybe a better relationship. So I don't want to commit because maybe there's something better. We want to keep our options open. And this offers the illusion of having something when really we have nothing at all. We want that bigger, better deal. We're afraid. So we wait and we wait and we wait and we don't commit. But like so many things in life, we need to be careful Because offers don't last forever, (laughs) do they? Just like milk, there's an expiration date. 
There's an expiration date. And you can't turn everything into cheese. The farmer's got that. There is an expiration date. See, failure to commit, it ignores the voice of God. And it ignores the life of faith that God is calling us to because following God is exciting. It's scary at times. But it's by faith that we know him. It's by faith that we please him. And God is calling us to this exciting venture of faith with him. But it means stepping out in areas where it will only work if it is God. It calls us to say, Lord, I'm going to focus my heart to know your voice. Cleanse my life. Take away every distraction. I want to hear your voice because I'm in. I'm committed. You said I'm going to jump. I'm going to yell, help. And even sometimes I've jumped and I've said, is this you, God? This seems crazy. But that brings me back, do I know him? Am I walking with him? Am I fully committed to him? Am I a fully committed follower of who Jesus is? Because, see, God is calling us out, and he's sending us into situations that only he can handle. He wants to send you into situations that only God can handle. Because you're a child. That's the work. That's the deep work. If God wants you to just put a band-aid on something, you don't need him for that. You go up and you put a Band-Aid on. But the cuts are so deep in us and in our society that a Band-Aid's not going to work. So God's going to send you to people, to situations that apart from God in your life leading you and calling you, it's not going to work. There are situations in my family that apart from God, it is not going to work. There have been situations in my life that apart from God, it's not going to work. But that's what God does. God's going to commit. Come to me, surrender to me, allow me to be in your life, and watch what I will do, and the world will say, I know that's God because it's not Dwayne. Dwayne can't do that. I know that's Susan because she can't do that. Only God can do that. Are you hungry for that life? How many of you want that kind of life? You're walking and you're going, man, God, this is you. But it takes commitment. It takes commitment. And our lack of commitment that's what has made us one of the isolated cities in America. A city filled with amazing art, amazing coffee. You know i got to mention coffee every sermon. <laughs> the beauty and the nature is second to none. The people here are second to none, and I mean that sincerely. I love Seattle. But our fear of commitment is isolating us, and we were not made to be alone. We need to recognize that there is no neutral ground. A failure to commit is a willingness to reject. Because if you're afraid to commit to something, that means you're willing to also reject it. You're holding out. Okay, that may be a a mind-blowing thing from you. But until you say yes, it's a no. Job offers expire. Things expire. And if you haven't said yes, that's a no. It's like stringing somebody along. Is it right to string people along? I believe the answer to that is no. We don't string people along. We don't treat people that way, and God doesn't treat us that way. He doesn't treat us that way. That's why he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24. Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because no decision is still a decision. It's rejection. And, And God never pulls away 
from that pressure to make a decision because until you do it, it's a no. In any area of your life. And Jesus never pulled back because the holiness of God is never compromised. This is not a dysfunctional relationship where we just kind of string each other along. Choose you this day. See, one of the biggest reasons, I think, why Jesus was so offensive to many and such a threat was that Jesus often brought people to a breaking point where they were either broken and received the healing or they were broken and rejected. They either break and walk away and goes too much or they're saying, Lord, break me and heal me. Restore me. Put these pieces back together. And this happens at many points in our life. There have been many points that I've come to in my life where just when I thought I was sitting on all cylinders, the Lord began to move in my life and say, let's talk about this. I'm getting ready to break this, Dwayne. You ready? (laughs) You're like, man. Uh, but it's because he loves us. It is because he loves us that he pulls us in. He's saying, choose you this day. He didn't say choose you just this year. It's a day by day, moment by moment, isn't it? Day by day, moment by moment, because you don't know the future, but God does. And he lines you up and he pulls you in. He says, all right, are you ready to do today what only I can do in your life? Are you ready to do today what only that person needs as I flow through your life? It's an empowerment. It's a faith. It's a daily commitment every day. It's like everything else. It's like marriage. Every day, Stephanie has to get up and say, I'm going to love Dwayne today, right? (laughs) Stephanie's my wife. (laughs) Every day. Why? Because some days... You get up, and the omelet's ready, and the latte's ready, and everything's just cooking. But there are days you get up, and they're hard. It's a day by day, moment by moment. Though they slay me, yet I will serve you, Lord. As for me and my house, my entire house, we will serve the Lord. So we need to commit. We need to recognize he is my king. He's on a mission to seek and to find me. And now I need to commit because God wants to send you out to seek and to save a Seattle that is broken. He wants to send you out to seek and to save a shoreline that is broken and lost and doesn't even know it. But he doesn't want to send you out as an arrogant leader that thinks you're better than them. He doesn't want to send you out as someone just comes in on a mighty steed, but someone who's coming in humble, willing to serve, willing to get dirt under their nails, whether it be humble like Jesus, because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. How many, that's the life that you want? You're tired of just sitting back. You're tired of just sitting back and you're saying, Jesus, I want you to use me. I want you to be in my life even if it means broken for you. I'm not here just to occupy Seattle. I'm here to be an agent of change with Jesus and to love Seattle, to love Shoreline, to love Everett, to love Briar, to love Mount Lake Terrace, to love Lake Forest Park, to love Tacoma, to love Olympia, to love nations around the world that we'll never see, but we're going to love them from here with missions, and we're just going to send it out and say, Jesus, they need you. These are our brothers and sisters who are broken, and unless we help and support, nothing's going to happen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, I believe you brought us to a holy moment. On this Palm Sunday, when you entered as a king, 
And Lord, today, that's the word you have for us. You're our king, but do we know it? You're our king, but do we recognize you as king? So Lord, forgive me, forgive us when we have failed to recognize your authority, your love, your friendship. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. As we head into this response time today, because it's not enough just to be hearers of the word. James talks about that. We're not to be called to be hearers of the word. We're called to be doers. Called to be doers. Doers of the word. To look in the mirror and to walk away and do nothing is not enough. So as we head into this response time, you'll have a response later on your own in your own personal time. But I believe it's important for us to respond as the body of Christ today. One of the ways that we do that is every week we have a communion. As we've talked about the broken body of Christ today, how he was broken for you, broken for me. He suffered because of me. It's it's personal. And Jesus said, never forget it. Not because he wanted to shame you. Not because he wanted to say, look what I did. But I believe one of the biggest things about communion is that Jesus is trying to tell us, look what I'm doing. It's not just look what I did. He died for us. He's broken for us. But it's continual. Look what I'm doing in your life. My body is broken for you. Are you willing to be broken to be made new? And so we eat that bread, giving thanks to the Lord, but saying, Jesus, break me. And I want to ask you, are you willing to be broken? Are you willing to be broken? And that's a big decision. I'm not saying, are you willing to give your life to Christ? To many of you, most of you in in this room know the Lord. But the walk with Jesus by faith is there's times he comes in. He says, new season. Let's get ready. Your muscles are going to hurt. You're going to lift things that apart from me are going to crush you. Are you ready? Think about that. And then we take the cup representing the blood of Jesus Christ. The spotless lamb of God that takes away our sin, my sin. The Bible also says that by stripes we are healed. And we drink it. Maybe you need healing today. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, whatever it is. When I drink that cup, just represent, representing the blood of, of, of Jesus. And for today, it's an it's in, intention. So don't drink these cups. That'll gross some people out. That was a joke. But just take the bread and just dip, dip, dip it in. But as I do that, I think about how Jesus is healing. He's healing me. And he's saying, Dwayne, I want to flow through you if you allow me to break you and use you to heal your family members who don't know Jesus. Your neighbors who don't know Jesus. People around you who don't know Jesus. People you pass by. I want a life that is walking in complete unity with my Savior, my King, who speaks to me and I listen and then gives me the courage to step out by faith and do things that apart from God, it is crazy. But I'm willing to be crazy as long as it's Jesus. Most of us, we've been crazy for so many other things. Are you willing to be crazy for Jesus and to hear his voice? Communion reminds me of that. We have prayer walls with markers. There's something about writing a prayer. 
God, break me. Lord, I surrender this to you. Take my addictions, take my hurts, take my habits, take my hang-ups. Help me to celebrate recovery (laughs) right now in this. Help me to flow in you. You need to pray with somebody and say, pray with me. God's speaking to me. Or maybe today you're going, you know what? I recognize he's my king. I'm ready to commit and to give my life to Christ. To say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Enter my life. Spirit of God, fill me. Because when we surrender to Christ and we mean it, his spirit fills us. His spirit fills us and it changes us and it transforms us. Speak to somebody today. And maybe you just want to kneel where you are. Find some way. We have a couple questions up here. And just ask yourself, how is Jesus leading you? Is his leadership evident in your life? If you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, is somebody looking at you and going, they're being led. Jesus is their Lord. And then ask yourself, are there areas where you struggle with how Jesus leads you? Where are you struggling? Are there areas that seem to have no action or justice? And how are you dealing with these? Because these deep questions are where Jesus is speaking to you. He's saying, you willing to ask? Are you willing to listen? Let me lead you in this. Amen. So Father, lead us now as we respond. My King, my Lord, pull us on your mission, we pray, as we commit to you. Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life. Say this together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.